for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We hope you can join us to celebrate Reformation Day 2021 on October 30th in Louisville, Kentucky. The Mid-America Reformed Baptist Association of Churches invites you to a one-day conference featuring Pastor Sam Waldron, Ron Miller, and Ben Carlson, who will be speaking on Solus Christus, or the Doctrine of Salvation by Christ Alone. To learn how you can attend in person or via live stream, visit marbach.org slash Alone. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is the Man of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations, go to Puritan Audiobooks. The following chapter is taken from a book, The History of the Baptists in Kentucky, The Great Revival Among the Baptists. When the Reverend Robert Davidson, in his History of the Presbyterian Church in Kentucky, says, Unlike the still small voice or the softly flowing waters of Siloa, the Great Revival of 1800 rather resembled a whirlwind the earthquake and the impetuous torrent, whose tract was marked by violence and desolation. The description must be applied to its influence on the Pado-Baptists and not to that on the Baptists. The stormy violence was caused not by preaching the gospel of the Son of God in a rustic log-meeting house or a settler's cabin, singing praise to God with becoming gravity, cheerfully exhorting sinners to repent and meekly instructing the penitent in the way of salvation from house to house with earnest humble prayer, but by thundering declamation from the stand, a great sacramental gatherings and camp meetings, shrieking rude choruses in the ears of the multitudes, yelling frantic exhortations up and down the aisles, and shouting boisterous prayers from stentorian lungs. It was not the Holy Spirit moving the hearts of the people to humility and repentance before God that moved the multitudes to madness, but the stirring of human passions by wild acclamations and loud, confused shouting. Among the Baptists in northern Kentucky, where they were by far the most numerous, a revival began and continued to its close in a decorous, orderly manner. In the upper Green River country in East Tennessee, where the separate Baptists were most numerous, there was more excitement and some falling and jerking. In Middle Tennessee, then called Western Tennessee, the strange exercises did not prevail among the Baptists. In the lower Green River country, there were but few Baptists at the beginning of the revival, and we hear of no disorder among them. It is certain that the Baptists of Kentucky were generally exempt from the excesses of the Great Revival of 1800 that so sorely afflicted the Presbyterians, and instead of its resulting in discord, it healed the only schism there was among them. The great revival among the Baptists, so far as history records the facts, began on the northern border of the state. Its first appearance was at the mouth of Kentucky River, where it was built a village of Port William, now Carrollton. This is a union meeting, the only one of which we are informed that the Baptists engaged in during the revival. The Baptists were probably most prominent, 
but there were Methodists enough present to make the meetings noisy. John Taylor was present at one of the meetings very early in the spring of 1800. It was at the house of Benjamin Craig, a brother of the famous Lewis Craig. Quote, from the dullness of my feelings, says Mr. Taylor, I took the text, Lord help me. After preaching, they continued in prayer, praise, and exhortation with much noise at times until late in the night. Some were rejoicing, having lately obtained deliverance. Others were groaning in tears. Many people tarried all night to talk with me. I never heard the question, what must I do to be saved, more prevalent in my life. A number of them neither lay down nor slept during the night. About sunrise the next morning, I took my leave of this blessed company of young disciples. I had no desire to use food that day. I rode on with pensive reflection, calling up in my mind past days when I had hoped the candle of the Lord shone on me. But by the multiplicity of the business of this little world, my affections had been stolen off from the Lord. My eyes would not only swim, but overflow with tears as I rode along by myself. Mr. Taylor was on his way to what is now Trimble County. It was a new settlement. Being detained there several days on business, he held three night meetings in the cabins of the settlers. In these meetings, he saw some buddings of a revival. Out of these buddings grew Corn Creek Church before the year closed. From this place he went with a burdened soul to Clear Creek in Woodford County. Here he preached with great heart, yearning for his old neighbors. That day he sowed in tears, and the harvest was plentiful. He turned his steps towards Bulletsburg in Boone County, where he lived. I almost dreaded to go home, he says, fearing I should be unprofitable. Poor Bulletsburg now appeared like a deserted cottage in the wilderness. When he reached home, he found a new social feature in the neighborhood. A Captain Depew, who had married a relative of Mr. Taylor's wife, had encouraged dancing at his house, and the amusement had become so popular that even the church members did not restrain their children from attending the balls. A marriage in the neighborhood had given an occasion for several days dancing, the last dance being at Captain Depew's near the meeting house and on church meeting day. That night, says Mr. Taylor, I had meeting near the place, but few attended, though I heard they had crowded house at the inn fair. Two young ladies left to dance and came almost alone to the meeting. This is some encouragement that the devil did not reign sole monarch of this lower world. Next day was preaching at our meeting house. It was a usual thing, notwithstanding the vanity of youth, for all to come to meeting, especially on Sundays. We had a crowded house, and perhaps all the dancers were there. Mrs. Depew had endeavored to strengthen her female disciples before they went to meeting by saying to them, Girls, we shall hear enough of our dancing today, but let us not mind what Mr. Taylor says. We are at liberty, and we will do as we please. Let him say what he will. I never had been so thoroughly cowed down by discouragement in a ministry of 25 years. I really thought I had better be dead than alive, for I felt that Satan had gotten a mastery where I lived. I could say for my soul, Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshech, and that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. I preach from the words my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Soon after I began, a set of feelings overtook me that exceeded anything I ever felt in public speaking. 
They consisted of a profuse weeping that I could not suppress. While I made a comparison of the then state of Israel with my poor neighbors, the whole assembly seemed to reciprocate my feelings. Perhaps there was not a dry eye in the whole house. Mrs. Depew exceeded in weeping. What the Lord did at this meeting entirely broke up all the dancing and the settlement. In this manner, the great revival began at Bulletsburg Church early in the spring of 1800. There was a new settlement, and when the revival had continued more than a year, there were comparatively few adults in the neighborhood left out of the church. Within three years, 146 were baptized. At Clear Creek, in Woodford County, the revival progressed during the same period, principally under the ministry of Richard Cave, and the astonishing number of 343 were baptized during the three years. Thus was John Taylor honored by God as the chosen instrument by which the great revival was begun among the Baptists. It will be remembered that the first revival which occurred in Kentucky was under the ministry of Mr. Taylor at Clear Creek in 1785 and that the second revival that occurred in the country also began under his labors at the same church in 1788. In Franklin County, the revival began under the ministry of William Hickman, of whose labors we have the following account from his own pen. Quote, Previous to that date, in the year 1800, the church was under a decline. Zion had gone into her slumbers. At a meeting at my house on Sunday afternoon, several preachers being present, there came a young married lady to meeting, whom I had never seen before, as she had just now moved into the neighborhood. In time of preaching, I observed tears flowing from her eyes. This gave me an uncommon feeling. I thought she was pierced with the sword of the Spirit. I think it gave me a travailing soul for the cause of God. She became an humble penitent and is now, I hope, in glory. Very shortly after this, I heard of three females under trouble and inquiring the way to heaven. I started out to hunt the lost sheep. The first I went to see was a married lady. I conversed with her and she satisfied me that she had been born again. I went to see two more the same day. The first was not at home but had gone to where the other lived. I called there and found them both. We walked into the garden. Neither of them professed to be satisfied, but appeared humble beggars at a throne of grace. Meeting which was near at hand, the first one I visited came forward and told us what the Lord had done for her. She was cordially received. My dear brother John Gano, though in a feeble state like old Jacob, Leaning on the top of his staff, spoke at the water, and I baptized her in the name of the Holy Trinity. The next meeting, the other two came forward, and I baptized them. Blessed be God, the glorious work of God went on and prospered abundantly. Every meeting was crowded, and many were converted to God. The work had now spread throughout the state of Kentucky. For two or three years, great additions were made to the churches, not only in Kentucky, but also in Virginia and the other states. I suppose I baptized more than 500 in the course of two years, in quote Hitman's narrative. It may as well be observed here that protracted meetings, as we termed them, were not in vogue at that period. Meetings were held monthly, as now at the meeting houses. During revivals, which generally lasted from one to three years, night meetings would be held at private houses two or three times a week. 
When people were seeking religion, it was generally known all over the neighborhood. They would often go to the preacher or the most pious and intelligent members of the church for encouragement and instruction, and the preacher and other church members would visit them for the same purpose. As observed by Mr. Hickman at the close of the year 1800, the revival has spread to all parts of the state of Kentucky. Immense numbers were added to the churches. The few churches scattered in the thinly settled portions of the state, lying south of Green River and north of that stream below the mouth of Salt River, were all small, and we have few particulars of their statistics previous to the beginning of the revival. But the general statistics show that the number of Baptists in those regions were more than tripled. From most of the churches in the older settlements, we have official statistics. The revival proceeded much in the same way in all these churches. The preaching was doctrinal rather than hortatory. The exhortations were fervent and made up largely of scripture quotations, as were also the prayers. The songs of Isaac Watts' collections and were sung slowly and gravely. At Severance Valley in Hardin County, the revival commenced in 1801. The meetings were conducted by the venerable Joshua Morris. Meetings were held once a month on Saturday and Sunday, and members were received on Saturday and baptized on the Sunday following. The church records exhibit the following items. In September, we prayed at opening and received seven members by experience. In October, we met for prayer. November had no business to do but to praise God and receive 20 members. In December, we received nine members. In January of 1802, we received 22. In this manner, the work proceeded until 146 were received. In 1801, the church numbered only 47 members. The Honorable Samuel Haycraft thus describes the baptismal scene as it occurred in January of 1802, quote, The writer remembers the day, 69 years now past. The weather was mild for the season, and the baptismal scene on the Valley Creek was a solemn and pleasant occasion. A vast crowd stood upon the banks as one after another stepped into the stream and was buried with Christ in baptism. At the slight intervals, hymns of praise and shouts of rejoicing rent the air. I could never forget it. The venerable Morris was so filled that he seemed as one snatched up into the heavens. Although but a child, I was filled with solemn awe. At South Elkhorn, the oldest church north of the Kentucky River, the meetings during the revival were conducted by John Shackelford, survivor of that noble band of Christian heroes who preached the gospel through prison grates in Virginia. In 1800, the church numbered 127. During the revival period, 318 were baptized. At Bryant Station Church in Fayette County, the practical and conservative Ambrose Dudley was the pastor. In 1800, the church numbered 170. During the revival period, 421 were baptized. This is the largest number baptized in any one church. Great Crossing is in Scott County. In 1800, it numbered 107. Joseph Redding was the pastor. 407 were baptized. In something like these proportions did the churches increase in numbers throughout the state except within the bounds of Bracken Association, where a revival had prevailed to a considerable extent in 1797. 
Happily, our statistics for 1803 are nearly complete so that we can approximate very closely the numerical gain to the churches during the three years in which the revival prevailed. The effects of the revival, aside from the numbers it added to the churches, were exceedingly salutary. Before the revival, the morals of the people, under the predominating influence of infidelity, were extremely bad, especially in the Green River country. The Reverend J. M. Peck, writing to the Christian Review in 1852, says, quote, Infidelity received its death blow during that period. Not a few continued infidels and scoffers, but they were shorn of their strength. So many of their number had been converted, some of whom became efficient preachers of the gospel, that infidelity could no longer boast. Multitudes of strong-minded men, proud in their habits of free thinking, were converted in so sudden and an impressive a mode as to perplex and confound their associates. And all the preachers who engaged in this great work, however deficient in education, moderate in natural talents, or illogical in argument, there was one trait of character prominent in all their ministrations. They gave most convincing proof of their earnestness and sincerity that they fully believed all they uttered. The preachers generally made no effort at skillful argumentation and did not attempt to prove the Bible to be the Word of God, or Christianity a divine verity, but they preached his most commonplace truths to the consciences of all classes. Their intonations of voice, impressive gestures, impassioned expostulations, and frequent weeping went direct to the feelings and hearts of their hearers. We've heard men say who went to the meeting, infidels, scoffers, hardened in sin, and determined to resist every serious impression, that in an instant, and before they had been on the ground ten minutes, their consciences were arrested, and their minds filled with indescribable emotions, that they had not time to recollect the objections with which their minds had been fortified against the truth of the Bible. Others could not tell of any process of reasoning in their own minds by which they came to a knowledge of the truth. They would speak of being overwhelmed and borne down with a consciousness of the reality and power of eternal things, an instantaneous and deep conviction of their exceeding sinfulness and guilt, and their just condemnation by the divine law would be the description given by others. Equally sudden and irrepressible would be their views of God's pardoning mercy through Jesus Christ, and removing all guilt and filling their minds with indescribable joy and rapture. We have conversed with some persons of a reflecting and meditative turn, in a great degree devoid of emotion, who described their conversion from unbelief and sin as more gradual and attended with more thought, who appeared to have proceeded step by step from one refuge to another, without hope and consolation, until in the hour of despair they were led to trust in Christ, and after much doubt and hesitation were enabled to lay hold of the promises. The period was a turning point in the morals of the people. With the increase of infidelity, public morals had depreciated until they had reached a depth of degradation that was horrifying to contemplate. But the cause being removed, the effects ceased, and the whole land seemed regenerated. From that period to the present, the morals of the people of Kentucky would compare favorably with those of any part of the country. The effect of the revival on Christians was permanently good. 
It imbued them more deeply with the spirit of the master and gave them clearer views of the spirituality of religion. It turned their minds away from metaphysical abstractions about dogmas and inspired a greater earnestness for spreading the gospel of salvation. They became more interested in sinners being born again than in determining the comparative orthodoxy of Calvin and Arminius, and were more desirous to promote love and harmony among the brethren than to discover indistinguishable shades of heterodoxy in each other's creeds. The mere forms of religious moral ceremonies and learning catechisms gave way to a firm belief in the necessity of experimental religion. The revival had a special happy effect on the Baptists in disposing them to make more efforts to heal some unhappy divisions that existed among them and in enlarging the spirit of missions. Before this, their missionary operations had been confined to sending their ministers to look after their destitute brethren in Kentucky and in the adjacent borders of Tennessee, Indiana, and Ohio. But in 1801, at the meeting of Elkhorn Association, which comprised one-third of the Baptists in the state, and probably more than two-thirds of their wealth and influence, a request came up from South Elkhorn Church to send missionaries to the Indian nations. The association took the subject under consideration and agreed to appoint a committee of five members to hear and determine on the call of any of our ministers and if satisfied therewith, to give them credentials for that purpose, to set subscriptions on foot, to receive collections for the use of said missions, and it is recommended to the churches to encourage subscriptions for said purpose, and have the money lodged with the deacons to be applied for that purpose whenever called for by the committee. Now, in closing out today's podcast, I want to be fair to the Presbyterians because I believe that the comments that were made at the beginning of this narrative unjustly condemn them for the aberrations that you see in the Kentucky Revival of 1800. But as I've done extensive study on this myself, I want to read a letter that was written from George Baxter to Archibald Alexander. Alexander was only 30 or 31 and became the first professor of the Theological Seminary at Princeton in the year 1812. And I want you to judge for yourself whether the Presbyterians were given to fanaticism, enthusiasm, or anything of the like nature during the Kentucky Revival of 1800. The is taken from Sketches of Virginia by William Henry Foote, January 1st, 1802, to the Reverend Archibald Alexander. Reverend and dear sir, I now sit down agreeably to promise to give you some account of the revival of religion in the state of Kentucky. You have no doubt heard already of the Green River and Cumberland revivals. I will just observe that last summer is the fourth since the revival commenced in those places, and that it has been more remarkable than any of the preceding, not only for lively and fervent devotion among the Christians, but also for awakenings and conversions among the careless. And it is worthy of notice that very few instances of apostasy have hitherto appeared. As I was not myself in the Cumberland country, all I can say about it is from the testimony of others. But I was uniformly told by those who had been there that their religious assemblies were more solemn, and the appearance of the work much greater than what had been in Kentucky. Any enthusiastic symptoms which might at first have attended a revival had greatly subsided, whilst the first serious concern and engagingness of the people were visibly increased. 
In the older settlements of Kentucky, the revival made its first appearance among the Presbyterians last spring. The whole of that country about a year before was remarkable for vice and dissipation. And I've been credibly informed that a decided majority of the people were professed infidels. During the last winter, appearances were favorable among the Baptists and great numbers were added to their churches. Early in the spring, the ministrations of the Presbyterian clergy began to be better attended than they had been for many years before. Their worshiping assemblies became more solemn and the people after they were dismissed showed a strange reluctance at leaving the place. They generally continued some time in the meeting house, in singing, or in Christian conversation. Perhaps about the last of May or the first of June, the awakenings became general in some congregations and spread through the country in every direction with amazing rapidity. I left that country about the 1st of November, at which time this revival in connection with the one on Cumberland had covered the whole state, except in a small settlement which borders on the waters of Green River, in which no Presbyterian ministers are settled, and I believe very few of any denomination. The power with which this revival is spread and its influence in moralizing the people are difficult for you to conceive of, and more difficult for me to describe. I'd heard many accounts and seen many letters respecting it before I went to that country, but my expectations, though greatly raised, were much below the reality of the work. The congregations, when engaged in worship, presented scenes of solemnity superior to what I'd ever seen before, and in private houses it was no uncommon thing to hear parents relate to strangers the wonderful things which God had done in their neighborhood whilst a large circle of young people would be in tears." On my way to Kentucky, I was told by settlers on the road that the character of Kentucky travelers was entirely changed, and that they were now as distinguished for sobriety as they had formerly been for dissoluteness. And indeed, I found Kentucky the most moral place I had ever been in. A profane expression was hardly ever heard. A religious awe seemed to pervade the country. And some deistical characters had confessed that from whatever cause a revival might originate, it certainly made the people better. Its influence was not less visible in promoting a friendly temper. Nothing could appear more amiable than that undissembled benevolence which governs the subject of this work. I have often wished that the mere politician or deist could observe with impartiality their peaceful and amicable spirit. He would certainly see that nothing could equal the religion of Jesus for promoting even the temporal happiness of society. Some neighborhoods visited by the revival had been formerly notorious for private animosities, and many petty lawsuits had commenced on that ground. When the parties in these quarrels were impressed with religion, the first thing was to send for their antagonists, and it was often very affecting to see their meeting. Both had seen their faults, and both contended that they ought to make concessions, until at last they were obliged to request each to forbear all mention of the past, to act as friends and brothers for the future. Now, sir, let modern philosophists talk of reforming the world by banishing Christianity and introducing their licentious systems. The blessed gospel of our God and Savior is showing what it can do. Circumstances have concurred to distinguish the Kentucky Revival from most others of which we have had any account. I mean the largeness of the assemblies on sacramental occasions, the length of time they continued on the ground in devotional exercises, and the great numbers who have fallen down under religious impressions. 
of little avail to object to all of this, that probably the professions of many were counterfeited. Such an objection would rather establish what it meant to destroy. For where there is no reality, there can be no counterfeit. And besides, when the general tenor of a work is such as to dispose of more insincere professors to counterfeit what is right, the work itself must be genuine. But as an eyewitness in the case, I may be permitted to declare that the professions of those under religious convictions were generally marked with such a degree of engagedness and feeling as willful hypocrisy could hardly assume. The language of the heart, when deeply impressed, is very distinguishable from the language of affectation. Upon the whole, sir, I think the revival in Kentucky among the most extraordinary that have ever visited the Church of Christ and all things considered, peculiarly adapted to the circumstances of that country. Infidelity was triumphant, and Christianity at the point of expiring. Something of an extraordinary nature seemed necessary to arrest the attention of a giddy people, who were ready to conclude that Christianity was a fable and futurity a dream. This revival had done it. It has confounded infidelity, odd vice into silence, and brought numbers beyond calculation under serious impressions. Whilst the blessed Savior was called home as people in building up of his church in this remarkable way, opposition could not be silent. At this I hinted above, but it is proper to observe that the clamorous opposition which assailed the work at its commencement has been in a great measure borne down before it. A large proportion of those who have fallen were at first opposers, and their example has taught others to be cautious, if it has not taught them to be wise. I have written on the subject to a greater length than I first intended, but if this account should give you any satisfaction, and be of any benefit to the common cause, I shall be fully gratified. Yours in the highest esteem, G.A. Baxter. Thank you for tuning in to the Man of God Network. This is a voice of the narrated Puritan. For further studies of the Kentucky Revival, please refer to the narrated Puritan at sermonaudio.com.